Now, I have a, a lengthy paper here that's going to be in the book in its full text. I don't think I have the time to read it all to you, but I'll do the best I can. I've gone through trying to pick out the particularly central uh, things, although uh, there are so many things you can say about the child protective system and the whole question of false child abuse allegations. I'll do the best I can to cover the leading points. And in a certain sense, my talk uh, follows pretty well from Allison's talk, I think. Um, you know, public policy in the US on child abuse and neglect and the formation of what we now call the child protective system was shaped by landmark legislation passed by Congress back in 1974, the Child Abuse Prevention and Treatment Act, CAPTA, also called the Mondale Act, named after you know, later Senator and later Vice President Walter Mondale, who pushed this. The act made federal funds available to the states for child abuse prevention and research programs on the condition that they passed laws which mandated the following, reporting by certain professionals such as physicians of even suspected cases of child abuse and neglect, setting up of specialized child protective agencies, usually housed within state and corresponding public social servants or, ch child, or child welfare agencies to supposedly address abuse and neglect. <clears throat> and so you have the CPS that came into existence. The granting of complete immunity from criminal prosecution or civil liability for mandated reporters and for CPS investigators, regardless of their actions, and even if the allegations were grossly erroneous. The ensuring of confidentiality of records and proceedings in each case, and providing for the appointment of a guardian ad litem in judicial proceedings for children alleged to have been abused or neglected. Effectively, CAPTA transformed public policy with respect to child abuse and neglect by means of this new federal grant and aid program to the states. And that's the way that public policy has been shaped in so many different areas in the United States in, uh, since the uh, first third of the 20th century. CAPTA's mandates encompassed all kinds of known and suspected child maltreatment, including physical abuse, sexual abuse, physical neglect, and psychological and emotional maltreatment. CAPTA, however, never defined any of those terms. And there has not been and is not today any widely accepted definition of them, even among professionals in the field. CAPTA further required the US Secretary of Health, Education, Welfare, now it's HHS, to establish a national center on child abuse and neglect to act as a clearinghouse for the development of information and dissemination uh, of uh, information about child protective research and programs. And the grants that were made through the center uh, were the basis for shaping child abuse and neglect policy across the country because for the states to get grants, they had to put into practices that we now associate with the CPS and what it does. Um, some states had uh, some of these changes before CAPTA, but they became universal across the country after CAPTA. And um, now if you look at uh, the question of the need for the Child Abuse Prevention and Treatment Act, um, well, in 1963, at the time that the first generation of very limited reporting laws were being put into place in the states, well before CAPTA, there were about 150,000 reports of abuse and neglect nationwide. By uh, just prior to, to the uh, to enactment of CAPTA, there were about 610,000. If you see how it proceeds after that, the trend of increased reports continues into the first decade of the 21st century. Um, you know, uh, 2009, there were 3.3 million reports. 2018, 
there were over 3.5 million. What that meant was an astounding increase in reports of 2,233% in over 55 years since the first reporting laws on the state level. But it must be kept in mind, however, that these figures merely tell us about an increase in reports. They do not verify that an expanding epidemic of, of actual child abuse and neglect occurred over this time, as they are often supposedly cited to prove. Um, all the evidence indicates that the number of reports are grossly out of line with the actual number of cases of abuse and neglect. For example, here in Ohio back in 1994, under pressure from uh, organizations like the ACLU and others, the state had to purge 471,000 names, mostly of parents, from their central uh, registry on child abuse, primarily because the allegations were unsubstantiated. Registries, by the way, are state listings accessible to the public of people who the CPS has investigated as possible abusers and neglectors, not people who actually necessarily committed any abuse and neglect. Okay? They're entered into these registries. So um, when you look at uh, the purge of 471,000 names in Ohio, 1994, that was an astonishing 78.5% of the names that were in the registry. Okay? Uh, some other states, you know, if you look at uh, Pennsylvania, for example, the substantiation rates, uh, you know, kept uh, dropping. 2006, 18%. Uh, 2008, 16%. Down to a little over, a little under 15% in 2010. You know, the uh, substantiation rate pretty small. You're looking there at, you know, 85% of the reports unsubstantiated. You know, and that was the case all over the country. You know. Um, by the, uh, in, in, as early as uh, the late 1970s, 65% of the allegations that involved three quarters of a million of children were held to be unfounded. By the mid-1980s, about 80% of the child's sexual abuse complaints were unfounded. And another uh, study at that time showed 60% of abuse complaints in general were unfounded. And if you uh, go further on, uh, 1997, okay, um, you had uh, uh, unfounded reports involving 2,046,000 children. And, uh, you know, uh, and you look to federal, just federal numbers themselves, Department of HHS, 3.3 million reports in 2009, under 15% were substantiated. In 2016, 83% of the reports leading to CPS investigations were held to be unfounded. Um, and uh, nevertheless, you know, um, uh, even among substantiated cases, the number of cases of serious maltreatment of children involving such things as death, life-threatening situations, serious injuries, was very small. Actually, most so-called substantiated cases involved uh, abu abuse and neglect involved minor situations, such as slapping and poor housekeeping. Uh, one of the leading scholars in this area is Douglas Besheru for the University of Maryland. He's written quite a bit about this over recent decades. And um, he... Uh, he talked about uh, this, uh, this number of percentage of complaints, false or unsubstantiated, unfounded. Uh, for a long time, you know, um, it looked like it was around maybe 65%. Uh, in recent years, it has climbed to 80% or more unsubstantiated complaints. Um, now, the upshot of all this is that we have a situation where a massive state bureaucracy with sweeping coercive power, as uh, Allison indicated, I think, to you, is having millions upon millions of dollars being poured into it each year, even though 80% or over 80% of its actions are completely unnecessary. 
Um, they've been told for several decades that there's a crisis of child abuse in the U.S. Um, and um, uh, of course, there's a real serious question as to whether this is true in light of all that that that's, uh, was just mentioned here. But also, you know, um, a congressionally some congressionally mandated studies of this whole question uh, showed that uh, in the period 1992 to 2009. Sexual abuse against children declined by 61%. Physical abuse declined by 55%. Now, so you see some of the numbers there, okay? Now, the experience of facing false charges, maybe it's better to call it an ordeal, can happen to any parent merely by a stranger picking up the telephone and anonymously, anonymously, calling a well-publicized hotline number or the local children's services or child welfare agency to say, without any evidence, that a parent maltreated his or her child. The result of this, of course, can be a disruption of family life as the CPS moves in to investigate and everything else. Legal troubles, financial difficulties, growing out of the parents having to defend themselves, forcible removal of children from their homes and their separation from their parents, perhaps for months or even years, without any proof of actual abuse or neglect. Now, um, so um, the, the, the problem, uh, the first problem indicated above about, and what I just said above here, about current abuse and neglect statutes is, as I mentioned, they provide no precise definition of what constitutes the supposed offense. And I say offense loosely because we're not really talking about the criminal law here for the most part. We're talking about another area of the law, essentially in the civil law, the area of juvenile law, okay? And uh, a number of books have been written about this over the years, and um, one of the early books was uh, Jean Giovannoni and Rosina Becerra's late 1970s book, Defining Child Abuse, in which they said the following. Many assume that since child abuse and neglect are against the law, somewhere there are statutes that make clear distinctions between what is and what is not child abuse and neglect. But this is not the case. Nowhere are there clear-cut definitions of what is encompassed by these terms. And not much has changed since the late 1970s. Writing in 2000, Besharov said, confusion about reporting is largely caused by the vagueness of reporting laws. He said further, such laws are often vague and overbroad. And the lack of clarity of definition traces itself back to the early state reporting laws before CAPTA and then to CAPTA itself. You know? um, now, lawyers and legislators are well aware of the need for statutes to meet the basic constitutional, traditional constitutional tests of avoiding vagueness and overbreath. The vagueness doctrine in constitutional law holds that a statute or regulation uh, cannot impose penalties without giving a clear idea of the sort of conduct that is prohibited. The overbreath doctrine says that activity cannot be proscribed or restricted, which is beyond the legitimate reach of government and that government cannot forbid or inhibit conduct which is constitutionally protected, and it cannot reach beyond con conduct that is illegal to restrain conduct that is illegal. And uh, that's been actually an ancient principle. It comes from an ancient principle of ang the Anglo-American legal tradition. You have to be, has to be clear what the law is. One is prompted to say that if this were any other area of the law than child abuse and neglect, Many of the statutes long since would have been struck down as unconstitutional in whole or part because of their vagueness or overbreath. Now, efforts to declare uh, state statutes in child abuse and neglect areas unconstitutional on these grounds, though, have had limited success in state courts. And apparently, uh, no federal court has intervened on these grounds. Um, now, if the statutes are vague as to what child abuse and neglect are, the agencies charged with enforcing them are no better. 
as Besharouf writes, existing standards set no limits on intervention and provide no guidelines for decision making. Essentially, it's up to the CPS social workers to decide what is meant by abuse and neglect. And many of them, by the way, are fresh out of college social workers, okay, who have no experience raising a family at all. Now, um, in uh, her book, one of these other books that I mentioned here, Out of Control, Who's Watching Our Child Protective Agencies, Brenda Scott relates um, what the National Committee for the Prevention of Child Abuse, a leading advocacy organization, regards as signs of possible abuse. This is an, an organization that really kind of promotes the idea of uh, aggressive child abuse and neglect uh, statutes. Here is what they say are signs of possible abuse. The child has a chronically unkept, appear unkept appearance. The child is overly neat, or a girl is dressed in an overly feminine way. The child is too loud or too talkative. The child ex exhibits shyness. Low self-esteem is apparent from the child's actions or words. The child uses aggressive or passive behavior, either one. There's a reluctance to participate in sports. There are noticeable signs of fractures, burns, bruises, cuts, welts, or bite marks. The child has sexual knowledge inappropriate for his or her age or acts out above the maturity level. The child complains of pain or itching or unusual bleeding or bruises that are noticed in and around the genital area. The child seems constantly hungry or fatigued. There is a noticeable lack of supervision. There is delayed physical, emotional, intellectual behavior. The parent is chronically late for meetings, or picking, chronically late picking up the child from school. The child exhibits chronic health problems. The parent fails to promptly repair a child's broken eyeglasses. There is noticeable need for dental work. The loss of a parent due to death or illness. The idea that being there, the remaining parent may become physically or sexually abusive as a result of the stress. The presence in the home of a stepfather. The child lives in an untidy home. The child is pulled out of school to be taught at home. We talked, heard about that this weekend. The child appears to suffer depression, apathy, or hopelessness. And there are reports from the child about occasionally sleeping in a parent's bed. Now, certain of these things can be indications of abuse. Most, of course, have absolutely nothing to do with abuse or neglect. In fact, um, you know, uh, Besharouf and uh, Mary Pride, who wrote another one of the earliest books, criticizing the CPS called the Child Abuse Industry, they both cite studies to show that social workers and others employed in the CPS don't even agree among themselves about what is or is not child abuse and neglect. So in spite of the uncertainty of uh, the CPS personnel themselves about what abuse and neglect is, a multitude, multitude of examples could be cited to show that the agencies interpret these vague and unclear laws decisively against parents. And parents are often not given the least benefit of the doubt. Okay? Um, in fact, very often, uh, what's betrayed in the CPS's attitude in their actions is hostility to the family, or at least a, a complete lack of awareness about what it really means to be a parent, or what family life really involves. And, um, Apart from the question of hostility to the family, just how ignorant the shapers of child abuse and neglect policy and the operatives in the CPS often are to the complexities and dynamics of family life and the nature of children, indeed a kind of naivety in which they approach these matters, is seen in the very generalizations they're so well known for making. Now, um, some of this is observed in what I've already said, but um, you know, they also, uh, you see a, a further thing with uh, 
the, uh, one of the tools of the trade of the CPS are risk assessment forms that they use, in which the caseworkers give numerical rankings to how, well, to how well parents measure up in various categories on the forms and then add up to the total, the, the total to supposedly determine how great a risk a child faces in the home. So if the numbers add up a certain way according to how you put them down, there's a threat to the child. Besides this being completely subjective, uh, Scott talks about this in her book quite a bit. You know, The assessments are basically left to the guidelines or the discretion of the individual social worker. It should not, uh, it should not have to be pointed out that family life, with its uncertainties, difficulties, and burdens, is not something that can easily and instantaneously be reduced to a number on a sheet. Such an attempt to uh, quantify a difficult problem that is not so intrinsically subject to quantification is a typical bureaucratic-like approach. It is probably supposed to act as a check upon an agency, an agency discretion or a means of helping to ensure competent judgment and accountability on the part of the bureaucracy. In reality, however, it creates what I call a surrealism about the entire subject of abuse and neglect and easily leads to false and unjust conclusions. Now, in Mary Pride's book about the CPS, she talks about the doctrine of total depravity, which holds that all parents, according to many, the thinking of many of the CPS, all parents are actual or potential abusers, and that all home environments are abusive. Thereby, thus, thereby, all state interventions are justifiable. In actuality, though, it's not all parents who are likely abusers. Genuine child abuse is in common uncommon in intact families, especially in the absence of factors such as alcohol or drug abuse. Abuse proportionately, disproportionately occurs in cases of single parentage, foster parentage, live-in boyfriends, and the like. It is also much more likely to occur in poor families and those who are better off economically. Now, there's the same confusion about what abuse and neglect are uh, that we've said characterizes the CPS and social workers in the CPS is also shared by judges, juvenile court judges, and physicians. Uh, a, say, a study which in, involving social workers cited by Besharov uh, showed that uh, kind of the things that, that I mentioned, he said kind of referred to a study that he had talked about. It showed that even a higher percentage of physicians than social workers were unclear about what was constituted, what constituted child maltreatment. Um, now, three other factors that contributes substantially to the great number of false abuse and neglect allegations and ensuing CPS intrusion into families are the ease of making reports to agencies, the legal pressures placed on various professionals and other occupational groups that encourage them to report in doubtful cases to protect themselves, and the blanket legal immunity given to the child protective system and, their per and its personnel. Um, reports can be made anonymously and on hotlines, they generally are made anonymously. All that's needed to trigger an agency investigation is an anonymous report. Hotline calls may or may not be screened, and no attempt necessarily needs to be made to determine if there is any validity to a report, nor is any threshold of probable cause generally required by law before an investigation is undertaken, or even generally any additional action undertaken, including the removal of children from the family. Um, a probable cause, the basic standard of criminal law, that uh, there has to be a showing that something illegal happened okay, in the first place. That's uh, not uh, present here when it comes to the CPS. Again, we're dealing with an area outside of the criminal law for the most part. 
Um, in 2004, Homeschool Legal Defense Association stated that only 16 states specified any standard in their child welfare laws that, quote, comes even close to that constitutional requirement for probable cause, unquote. So in effect, what you have happening is that anonymous reporters, not even the CPS itself, are often the ones who decide what the vague laws on child abuse and neglect actually mean. If their reports automatically give rise to investigations and the CPS intervenes into families, they, they essentially, the anonymous reporters, essentially become the arbiters of child protection policy. And uh, as I said, most state statutes or the regulations pursuant to them mandate the investigation of all reports of even suspected abuse or neglect. There may be some screening, there may not be. Depends on the state, depends on the regulations. Um, and since CAPTA, you've had uh, very large-scale media can and outreach campaigns carried on by the CPS, by law enforcement agencies, different organizations, to quote-unquote educate the public about child abuse. These campaigns have sought to convince the public of the epidemic of abuse and the need to look out for it and report it, but have done little to truly educate the public about what it is, which, as I've said, you know, even the people in the system, the CPS and so on, the professionals, even the judges, aren't even sure about themselves. Okay? Um, and the laws respecting mandated reporters, such as physicians and so forth, dentists and so on, you know, people, those attending, professionals attending to children and so forth, they wind up encouraging false allegations because they typically state that if such mandated reporters fail to report even suspected abuse or neglect, they may be criminally prosecuted. So they're going to try to cover themselves, obviously. You know? um, now, if the secrecy of the child protective system has helped to prompt its abusive practices, the immunity of its institutions and agents that, that they possess from criminal prosecution or even civil liability, okay, what I was just referring to here, has made it even more likely that there will be abusive practices by the system. Okay? So they have immunity. In addition to the mandated reporters having immunity, well, the people in the system have immunity from criminal prosecution or civil liability. That's a blanket, typically a blanket statutory immunity, even when the agents of the CPS have acted in bad faith or maliciously. So what you have is what Mary Pride referred to here as one-sided liability. Social workers, and or the state agencies uh, can be sued or even criminally prosecuted for not removing a child from his home who afterwards uh, is harmed or killed, where there's a genuine situation of abuse, but generally they're immune from suit when they wrongly remove a child, even without grounds, and regardless of how much damage is done to the child or the parent-child relationship. So they err on the side of excessive caution, as I said, to cover themselves, to protect themselves. Now, about the judges. The juvenile courts have not proven to be a significant check upon the CPS. First, most CPS contacts with the family do not end up in juvenile court. Secondly, as Professor Paul Chill of the University of Connecticut Law School has written, there are substantial obstacles faced by parents when confronting the CPS in juvenile court. He writes that in legal proceedings after a removal, generally in juvenile court, the CPS has tilted the legal playing field decisively against the parents as the burden is shifted entirely to them to show that they are fit, instead of on the CPS, to justify its continued control of a child that they have removed, let's say, from a family. 
So it's just the opposite as what we think about in the law. You know, you have to prove your innocence to an extreme instead of the state having to prove your guilt. Like the CPS operatives covering themselves, juvenile court judges often engage in a kind of defensive judging. Okay? They'll issue an order to permit a child to be removed from a home, or they'll uphold what the CPS calls an emergency removal they've already carried out on the basis of weak evidence because, well, it's better to err in that direction. Otherwise, somehow it's going to come back to haunt them, maybe at the next election. Now, Chill tells us that the passage of the Federal Adoption and Safe Families Act of 1997, it was aimed at the, at the supposedly good purpose of giving children who had been in the unstable and even dangerous foster care system for extended periods, periods of time the chance for permanency of adoption. That was the aim of the law, okay? In fact, it has in practice made it easier for the CPS and the juvenile courts to terminate the rights of the natural parents, even if not justified. The act has created an incentive to do that because to qualify for federal funds, the states are generally required to seek a termination of parental rights for any child who remains in foster care for 15 out of 22 consecutive months. Thus, there's now a financial incentive for the child welfare system to secure adoptions for children in foster care, even if they were wrongfully put into foster care, just as there has been a financial incentive to put them in foster care in the first place. Since programs to keep families intact generally do not qualify for the same amount of federal funding as foster care programs do. Now, um, Mary Pride compiled data about the civil rights of those accused of child abuse in all the states, basically. And, um, you know, I don't think I can cover all of this, but um, she uh, considered which states guarantee the five basic due process rights generally given in criminal cases, the right to be informed of the charge while under investigation, the right to trial by jury, the right to access to records being kept about a person, the right to have an unsubstantiated record removed, or not to have a record kept on file after a hearing, and the right to challenge information kept on file about a person. Okay? Now, uh, persons accused of non-criminal child abuse and neglect, most of whom were parents, had, at the time she wrote, none of those rights in 31 states. Okay? Some states guaranteed one or more of them, none protected all of them. Okay? Um, and um, when she wrote in the mid-1980s, None of the 50 states require that the accused be told of the charges. That has changed. Okay, there was a change in the law. The CPS, now when they come and knocking on a family's door, they have to tell them why they're there now. Okay, that's one thing that has changed. Um, you, know, um, uh, you know, there's no uh, right to anything like a request to a jury trial, even though that wouldn't be irregular in non-criminal matters. Okay? Uh, you know, only 16 states permitted access to records under at least some conditions while only 14 protected against unsubstantiated records being kept on file as a general rule and so forth. 14, only 14 permitted challenges to the record. Okay? Um, and, um, you know, uh, again, I'm going to skip over some things here. Um, uh, the, a further fact about the constitutional rights of those accused of, of non-criminal child abuse and neglect was the view that the CPS and even law enforcement officials that the guarantee of the Fourth Amendment against unreasonable searches and seizures did not apply necessarily here to the CPS. CPS operatives have generally had wide leeway in removing children from their homes, even without firm evidence of abuse or neglect. In itself, that's a search or seizure. That's forbidden by the Fourth Amendment. Okay? And in some states, you know, uh, CPS workers show up at a home accompanied by a police officer, and social workers have been forced to uh, have been able to force entry into a private home. Okay? And um, 
Sometimes, though, uh, they uh, even they do so by threats or deception. You know, they say they have a right to enter without a warrant when they don't, or, they, or simply because the parents don't know they have a right to refuse. And once they're led into a home, the social worker has virtually carte blanche to look around for anything to build a case against parents. They can and even have even done strip searches of a child to find evidence of sexual abuse. The statutes do not require a warrant for any of these things, okay? Uh, now, um, the, after initially being unwilling, however, the courts have now begun to respond more positively to Fourth Amendment challenges to warrantless CPS entries into homes of families. Seminal case was Calabretta versus Floyd, Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. That's out in California in 1999. And that case was brought by Homeschool Legal Defense Association, one of our co-sponsors of our conference. And in that case, the court did rule that CPS social workers, who in that case, accompanied by police, conducted a warrantless search of a home, including strip searching the children. That the court held they're bound by the Fourth Amendment, can be sued for federal civil rights violations if they don't uphold it. Okay? So the courts, at least in that area, began to uh, intrude and uh, say the statutes are defective under the Constitution. Now, another constitutional right that's basically de denied is the right to confront one's accuser. The right to confront is denied to parents, first of all, by the fact that so many complaints are made anonymously. So the identity of the complainants is not even known. If the complainant is, say, a child's physician, and the parents thus know his identity, they're still not generally afforded the right to confront him in a legal proceeding. And um, now, um, uh, I should say that one of the things now that uh, uh, parentalrights.org is seeking to do, they're seeking to get the statutory change uh, in CAPTA that would uh, require, would, would no longer permit anonymous complaints that the person calling would have to give his or her name to the agency, even though the agency could then withhold that, okay, from the family and so forth. But at least the, there's a push now by parentalrights.org to get this legislation changed so they would at least have to give their name. And of course, even that would be a dissuading factor for many people for making false complaints. If they know they have to give their name, they're probably going to be less likely to make a false complaint. Now, Scott, uh, in her book, speaks about parents being subjected to something like double jeopardy, because even if, that's forbidden by the Bill of Rights, obviously, because even if parents are exonerated by a criminal court, if a case even goes there, well, agency actions and proceedings against them in juvenile and civil courts may often still go ahead. Uh, now, it's true that American law has traditionally permitted something like that, and it's not considered double jeopardy, per se, but still, it gives one pause to wonder if this legal interpretation does not promote injustice. And so such a traditional approach to double jeopardy should perhaps be reevaluated. You know, parenthetically, criminal exoner exoneration is no guarantee that parents will get their children back even if they, have been taken away, if they have been taken away from them. But as I said, not very many of these cases go into criminal courts. Not many of them involve you know, criminal, criminal matters. Um, and... Um, on the question of being guilty, uh, being innocent till, until guilt is proven, the attitude that views parents as guilty as soon as an accusation is made, even without any evidence, and then expecting them to bear the sometimes overwhelming burden of evidence of proving themselves innocent is one of the major injustices of the CPS. Okay? And, um, you know, um, now the, uh, the problem of elimination of statute of limitations protection uh, in this area, normally if one is criminally charged, or if someone is to be subject to being sued civilly, it must be done within a stated period of time, usually a few years after the alleged action occurred. 
Eliminating this has resulted, in, in the case of uh, 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 child, the child abuse and neglect uh, questions, eliminating this has resulted in parents and other people being threatened with both criminal and non-criminal allegations indefinitely. A child protective agency, for example, can commence an investigation and take action against parents, in many cases, for alleged acts happening years ago. Uh, civil suits and criminal charges can be filed against parents or others for alleged abuse occurring even decades before. Okay? And the latter became an issue. This became an issue, especially as a result of, you probably heard of the so-called repressed memory syndrome, which has now been kind of discredited, but not entirely in which uh, punitive acts of, of, of abuse committed years before, you know, or punitive acts of abuse committed years before and allegedly repressed by the person because of the dreadful nature of supposedly what's happened, came back into their consciousness with the help of therapy, hypnosis, et cetera. And as I said, the entire validity of uh, repressed memory syndrome has been under much criticism, even within the discipline of psychology itself. And in fact, certain federal courts have overturned criminal convictions of different kinds that were based on repressed memory. Now, um, I mentioned that uh, there, one uh, change in CAPTA that occurred uh, back in 2003 was the requirement that social workers had to tell parents about the nature of the accusations against them as soon as they make contact. Okay? And those amendments also required CPS operatives to be trained about the constitutional and other legal rights of families. However, you know, the states have had a history of not acting very quickly to implement reforms in CAPTA, and the federal government has not leaned on them very strongly to make them do so. Now, um, wh why has all this happened in a deeper sense, okay? Well, um, American law has adopted what uh, criminal justice professor Philip Jenkins of Baylor University calls therapeutic values. Such values have their roots in the thinking of the social work, counseling, and other of the so-called helping professions, and of sociologists, psychologists, and other social scientists. I can tell you, much of social science is a mess out there, okay, as the president of a Catholic social science organization. Uh, and social scientists have been increasingly influential in shaping public policy. And their assumptions and understanding about human nature and society, however, are very problematic not founded at all on sound philosophical principles or understanding. Now, Jenkins says that um, therapeutic values as respects the law hold that courts are in the business of enforcing social hygiene rather than imposing punishment. The current laws about child abuse and neglect were substantially shaped by categories of people who abide by such therapeutic values. Academics in those fields, feminist theorists, therapists, pediatricians, children's rights advocates, lawyers working in this area. He explains how those, um, well, um, holding those therapeutic values, how they approach the whole notion of what law should do, okay? This is what it should do, they think. And these upholders of therapeutic values believe the courts really have no business regulating the actions of objective professionals such as social workers and medical authorities who, after all, are seeking to protect children. And they think that they can correctly judge from their professional understanding about the subject that a child or someone else has allegedly uh, suffered abuse and so forth. To put obstacles such as legal restraints in the path of acting quickly to protect the child is to fail in their task to help him, to alleviate his suffering. One would not demand constitutional rights, for example, when visiting his physician, who can only have his own best interests at heart. So how then, they think, should rights matter in something like child abuse, where the only concern has to be therapeutic, 
to heal the situation, treat the victim, separate him from the perpetrator until therapy can correct the problems of each one. Now, when we realize the nature of therapeutic values, we can understand why, why proposals have been made for such things as licensing parents, as coercive child abuse prevention programs from the time, the time of a child's birth, in which potentially abusive parents are supposedly identified at that point and placed in parenting programs, and the creation of a natural core of health visitors, as some have called for, to regularly go to each child's home until he starts school to check upon his parents. A scheme like this extending all the way through childhood and adolescence until age 18. That was uh, put in place in Scotland, maybe you've read about this, until it was successfully challenged in court as being against the European Convention on Human Rights and ultimately had to be scrapped by the Scottish government. Well, it goes without saying that those devoted, to, uh, devoted advocates of therapeutic values have little or no, little or no sense of the natural rights of parents. Okay, and, um, you know, has, um, uh, has this uh, whole regimen protected children? Well, that's a big, certainly a very big question mark, okay? In 2012, the annual report on child uh, maltreatment by the Department of HHS says that some children who died from abuse and neglect were already known about by CPS agencies. And then 30 states, 8.5% of such children had received what is called family preservation services from state agencies in the past five years. Okay? Um, you know, um, Besharouf in 2000 cited, cited studies showing that the then roughly, 20, the then roughly 25 years since the, the enactment of CAPTA, 30 to 55% of deaths due to abuse or neglect involved children known about by a child protective agency. Okay? And uh, well, then there's the question of foster care, you know? And uh, I can't go into this extensively, but uh, there's been a lot of evidence about real problems of, of foster care. Okay? Yeah, there are good foster parents, but there are also a lot of problems in foster care. And uh, uh, a number of studies have found in different states that uh, children in foster care have experienced abuse, neglect, harmful conditions, genuine abuse and neglect, harmful conditions, and so forth. Um, well, what are you supposed to do about all this? Okay? Well, I've been writing about this since 1988, you know? And the first time I wrote about it in the book that year was uh, from a conference uh, uh, in 1984. The, the book was called Parental Rights, The Contemporary Assault on Traditional Liberties. And um, I call for such things as eliminating the, the anonymous hotlines, you know, Laws should be altered to more clearly define the terms of abuse and neglect. Uh, you know, uh, eliminate legal provisions that could be interpreted to infringe upon parental rights to child rearing practices that they want, you know, including corporal punishment, reasonable corporal punishment. Child abuse and neglect should be treated as criminal matters, not some special category of juvenile, juvenile law. So all the constitutional rights would clearly be in force, you know. And, um, you know, I talked about a number of these kinds of things. Children should not be removed even temporarily unless there can be a conclusive proof in a proceeding before an impartial judge that they're in danger. You know, I talked about these kinds of things. Um, and, um, well, uh, and I insist upon reversing, reversing the one-sided liability I talked about. You know, so social workers and agencies shouldn't be subject to suit or prosecution for non-removal, you know. And, uh, you know, but if that's going to be the case, you know, then they, sh they, should, uh, they should be subject to suits by parents and legal guardians for wrongful removal as well, you know, the other side of the equation. Okay? Well, you know, uh, I thought about that. That's what I, I said at the time. And uh, in a later book, 2013, after another conference that was on, uh, you know, the CPS specifically and on child, false child abuse, 
book came out of that called Child Abuse, Family Rights, and the Child Protective System. And that, was, that conference, by the way, was, was co-sponsored by the Society of Catholic Social Scientists and the Catholic Social Workers National Association. And I came to the conclusion then, I said, that I think uh, the reforms are not enough, that the CPS is conceptually and structurally incapable of carrying out its self-proclaimed purpose. The problem is it's a therapeutic system, but it's coercively therapeutic. Okay? Its structuring and the very nature of the system has a number of different drawbacks. Okay? And uh, they see child maltreatment as something to be remedied by treatment instead of a an evil and criminal act to be punished, genuine abuse and neglect. You know, they believe in commendably in prevention, but they wrongly believe that state action can be universally, can universally bring that about without creating universal regimentation and a monstrous state tyranny. It's also routinely manned by people whose education and training have not made them particularly sympathetic to the family or aware of its basic natural irreplaceable value. And then the confusion among the CPS people themselves about you know, what child uh, maltreatment is, that reflects their own training in relativistic social science. It's beleaguered by the rigidities of limitations, self-interestedness, self-protectedness of bureaucratic institutions generally. It's beset by basic contradiction, contra contradictions of providing social services and assistance, supposedly on one hand, they say they're there to help, but on the other hand, being an enforcement arm. And um, what I came to the conclusion of essentially was that besides having clear criminal neglect, abuse and neglect statutes that clearly and unanimously prescribe what the offenses are, that this should simply be a matter of criminal law, okay? Genuine abuse and neglect, a matter of criminal law, get rid of this whole thing, of this, uh, uh, this area of child abuse statutes pursuant to the to Captain of the Mondale Act, which is outside the realm of criminal law for the most part. And uh, you, refer to, you, you refer to police agencies, they have stronger investigative skills, law enforcement personnel have, been, uh, have not been schooled in the intellectual environment of academic social work and related fields with the anti-parental, anti-family ideology that too often characterizes them. And uh, also, uh, law enforcement agencies know that uh, you know, they're subject to the Constitution and, uh, you know, and so forth. Now, what's actually happened, unfortunately, is because the CPS is out there, you know, um, well, they often will work with law enforcement agencies now, and so they wind up training the police officers. That's a problem by itself because, if you, see, because you see the faulty training of all these people in the CPS. This should be simply a matter of criminal law, the CPS out of the picture. And uh, we have to return to a notion of this which uh, corresponds with you know, an understanding of the, the community that your community generally has about abuse and neglect and that common sense prevails in this area. And of course, that traditional legal and constitutional guarantees apply. And that we have to guarantee families will not be targeted for innocent or trivial actions and so forth. And uh, the state has to get out of the business, which effectively it's gotten into with the Mondale Act of dictating to parents preferred methods of child rearing, okay? Uh, and so that's what I think should be done about this. And that's what I have to say about the topic.